You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm excited today to have Ajit Sivadasan on the podcast with us uh, to talk about scaling e-commerce beyond your own state. Ajit, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Fantastic. Well, we have lots to talk about, but before we get started, can you give us an idea of how you got to where you are? I don't know. Um, when I look back, I mean, a lot of it is luck and, you know, a lot of people helping me to get to where, we, where I am. So, you know, but I, I think the realization about 20 years ago or so that e-commerce was going to be something that was going to be important uh, and uh, had the potential to uh, change the way we interacted with our customers and the way we actually um, conducted ourselves. Uh, I, and I was very lucky that I kind of fell into it um, at, during my consulting years with uh, Deloitte and then with uh, with Gateway. Um, so I think it was just that realization and then being in that field for the last 20 plus years, just focused on all of the trends, trying to kind of build businesses in multiple places. Um, that really is the crux of it. And, and you know, if I had if somebody had told me this is how it would turn out 20 years ago, I would not have believed it. So a lot of it has got to do with how things actually worked out. Fantastic. Well, I remember when I moved to this country in 2001, I joined the, joined the startup after school. So that, that would be about 2005. And people were still working off of Yahoo carts. And then there was this small startup called BV Commerce that I guess just took off because it offered... Uh, uh, integrated payments and shipping from other vendors that Yahoo Card did not serve. And this thing like blew up. And then they offered integrations to all the ERP solutions out in the marketplace. And, uh, and, and everybody that graduated off of Yahoo Commerce, just like uh, uh, Yahoo stores, just moved straight into, into that. And the single use case was companies that went from one state to another state or wanted to do business in multiple states, like had to move off of Yahoo store. So, uh, super familiar with with the the exciting beginnings, and it's super interesting to see that like major companies like Salesforce and all these all these players have like acquired e commerce startups. But you've actually seen it all. So if it's okay, can you educate us on how was it when you first started, and what is the state of e commerce now? Yeah, look, I mean, when I started, uh, this was like I said, you know, I was doing some consulting for uh, Deloitte. And a lot of it was around due diligence. And at that time, we were in the middle of this e-commerce boom. Everybody kind of thought it was going to be a big, big deal. And I was right in the middle of it when the whole crash happened, right? So there was, there was a lot of skepticism in the market after that happened. And people were very, very wary. So the period after that was very, I would say, tepid in terms of people's um, openness to some of the e-commerce concepts. People said, man, this is you know, everybody threw the baby with the bathwater, right? And and they didn't necessarily believe in, in it, especially in companies. So there was a lot of struggle in trying to get things done in the early years. And I remember 
In fact, some of the early concepts of marketplace in 1999, 2000, I was running it off of people's expense reports um, because integrations were like $3,000, $4,000, and I couldn't get capital expenditure to happen. And But there were people who believed in it, like the public sector, the enterprise space, you know, they needed uh, enterprise level procurement to procurement um, uh, connections that automated some part of it. So that was the initial kind of the landscape. And it was very difficult to get, uh, even though people kind of understood the concept, but they just did not understand how this is going to change the world. Uh, so it was very, very difficult. And then when I left Gateway and I joined Lenovo, um, same thing. Um, Lenovo, as you know, was legend, uh, the company that was in China that bought the IBM business. And even as a $13 billion entity, the entire e-commerce business was about $200 million and mostly uh, enterprise. It wasn't even uh, pure consumer. Uh, so if you really think about the early days, it was really trying to prove to everybody that this is a viable concept. People were worried about using credit cards online. People were worried about security. Uh, they were worried about so many things that the inertia for people to actually adopt was so high that it was very, very difficult to get people's attention. Now, I was very lucky that our CEO and uh, people at the time, the CT CTO and the CIO, they were all very progressive people who believed in the concept of at least making sure that efficiency was a metric that we looked at and then figured out. And, and some of these people um, luckily had prior experiences coming from places like Dell, which clearly was a leader in the space. So having sponsorship at the leadership level was very, very important for us to keep going. Um, initially, it was all about trying to prove the concept that actually it works. Secondly, it was about coexistence with the channel. So making sure that we were not disrupting, you know, a $13 billion business versus a $200 million business. How do you actually coexist and not disrupt in a way that uh, caused anxiety for the channel partners and resellers and other people? So we had to be very, very careful in the initial part of the journey. But once we figured out that we could coexist and there were opportunities clearly that were on the web versus in the channel, uh, we started kind of finding uh, common ground. We started looking at complementary approaches. We could not go full bore on many things when we started off the gate. Uh, and we were very, very deliberate in how we kind of found niche markets or long tail opportunities that allowed us to kind of prove the concept. And that took a good part of the first, I would say, six, seven years. Um, but, you know, the one good thing that happened was we became very scrappy. We started thinking about how do we actually create a value proposition that was unique and how do we leverage web in a different way than other people were leveraging. So as an example, we started looking at how do you, how do you give something that nobody else can give? Uh, configured order, as an example, something that Dell had successfully done for many, many years, but most companies were still struggling with it. But we did recognize at the time that anything where the customer is going to be involved in building, they are going to be invested emotionally. And so this was a big aha moment. And one of the first things that I did when, when I came to Lenovo was to say, how do we change our entire ThinkPad portfolio, which is the iconic brand at the time for us and still is, to a configure-to-order um, model so that customers who really wanted to use our products, and a lot of the people who actually used our products were very technical in the early early days, and they knew exactly what they wanted. They wanted to build it themselves. Uh, these were people who needed no 
explanation of how the technology worked. So it was, we knew we were catering to this niche and these people, uh, they could not find something that they wanted in, in the traditional retail or reseller or the channel model. And, and that was the initial impetus for us to go buy that value proposition. And we quickly found out that it was very profitable. Uh, customers loved it. Uh, they keep coming back. Uh, so over the last 15 years, that's what we've done is to really find value proposition that really resonates. How do you keep building the value proposition that is deep? How do you differentiate the experience enough so that the people who are comfortable buying on the web uh, always thought about us as an option? And, and that's what we have continued. And now things have gotten a lot more easier. Uh, people understand e-commerce thanks to people like Amazon and others. Uh, it, is, it is no longer something that people talk in whispers. It, it is kind of mainstay of kind of what we do. So things have become much more easier. Of course, as we have scaled the business, we have had a lot of challenges in kind of because conflict becomes much more real. Now it is substantial. And therefore, the conversations are much more about differentiating the portfolio. How do you actually create a unique portfolio? How do you create unique services? How do you do subscription services? How do you integrate more products that maybe even Lenovo doesn't sell uh, to to the whole conversation? How do you start uh, selling software? Um, how do you integrate our entire portfolio and and start looking at customers' needs from a from a lifetime um, life cycle standpoint? So the the shift has been quite steady, but the principle has remained the same, which is how do you measure on the strengths of e-commerce and the web? And how do you build a unique value proposition for our customers, if that makes sense? So, totally does. Thanks for walking us through this. So your go to market originally was either through the channel or direct, and then you introduced a e-commerce store, basically. Correct. Correct. Right. We, we literally had, I came to Lenovo to build a online brand. And that was kind of my stated okay. job description. Perfect. And I'm sure when you walked in, people were like, oh, he's just going to build a service portal. No problem. You know, let's give him a few resources. It'll be fine here. Yeah. And then and then they didn't fully realize that the, the power of being anywhere and everywhere all the time could actually have a lot of scale effects. Yeah, well, um, in this particular case, the CEO at the time was an ex-Dell uh, leader. Okay. And he knew very clearly what e-commerce was. So his sponsorship and the sponsorship of our president, who is our current CEO, and of the CIO was instrumental in initial like two years of investments and making a bunch of changes that were very fundamental for our success today. If we had not done that during that time, I think that our progress would have been much, much slower. And so I cannot emphasize enough the importance of executive sponsorship and not just sponsorship, but just mandating that we had to uh, hit certain milestones, we had to do certain things, and we have to make visible progress is crucial. It doesn't matter what it is that we do, but uh, lip service is not going to do it. Uh, and, and to this day, my view is if it is lip service, I don't even want to be part of it because it just won't be successful. And people just then point to it and say, look, you failed because this was never going to be successful. So I tell my team... It's got to be binary. You believe in something, you believe it has potential. You got to give it every possible chance to be successful. And if you don't, then you end up agreeing to something. You provide a compromise solution and it doesn't work. And then people look at it and say, look, it doesn't work. And therefore, we shouldn't do it. 
So that's the biggest mistake people make. And I've been telling people, no, you believe in something, you got to go all in. Uh, now, you can experiment for six months, nine months, whatever. You don't have to spend a lot of capital, but you have to prove the concept without contaminating it with a lot of compromises because then you don't give it a fighting chance to survive. Yeah. No, I, I think the, 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 the best part of the story was that your CEO drove this, right? And yes. that is so true in almost all go-to-market initiatives. And uh, uh, my background is actually in biz dev. And, and I always say that like biz dev is something that the company has to do. It can't be just one person trying to go do this because it's it's a way of thinking, right? That's and right. then when you have a business that's so used to direct and then used to channel, and then you're saying, well, I have a way to actually help increase the gross margin of all of this, the uh, all of the business by introducing a new way people can, can uh, uh, interact. The first thing people are going to say, well... What's going to happen to my kingdom that I set up, you know? And so it's going to be difficult, right? And I've I've, I've been through those scenarios through too, and I've spoken to a bunch a bunch of people, and it's it sounds like it's it's it this thing could actually be be courted under the concept of business transformation. And I know like the that's a very like vague term, but but it sounds like like what you had to actually do was go through all of the, all of the, those things. So did you have to like sit down? with like other go-to-market leaders and explain this concept to them. How was that journey? It, it was painful um, because look, people, people are always worried about disrupting their existing business. And this is the biggest challenge when you're dealing with entrepreneurial concepts or trying to grow a part of the business that is new. Because, you know, it, it's always that, it's a reason why big companies fail. I mean, you, you think about BlackBerry, and you think about Nokia, and you think about some of the big brands that have failed, they all failed because they had this big business to protect. And then somebody came in and disrupted the entire business model overnight. And by not being open to some of these things, we run that risk. So it's the same thing. When I started, people were terrified. Some people are terrified even today, despite everything and all the proof points that point to the fact that there is going to be no two winners tomorrow. There is going to be one winner. And if you're not careful, you're going to really risk competition coming and taking share from you and disrupting your business in a significant way. Or worse yet, some upstart comes with a completely different business model and totally um, disrupts you. And that's that's the risk we run. Uh, It's the same thing. Um, When you sit down with people, some people get it. Some people don't. And the people who don't get it, they do everything to push back and make it difficult for you to get traction. And then the ones that get it, they adopt it, they champion it, they help you, and they reap the benefits of it, right? So we see parts of our businesses, parts of our geographies doing extremely well. Some parts are way behind. And the reason is because of that kind of lack of uh, trust in some cases, uh, lack of understanding and lack of belief that this is a concept that's going to help you. Yeah, valid point. And, you know, the the unique thing about this podcast is it's built for exec, senior executives like yourself helping other earlier stage executives get better at getting these difficult moments behind them, right? Yeah. And and so, so are you able to share some of the, I don't want to use the word tactics, but like some of the ways that you actually got consensus or if there wasn't consensus 
to move towards this, then then what did you do in those scenarios? Yeah, so look, this is all like playing chess um, very broadly, right? You you have certain moves. You got to build a position that's defensible. You got to attack where you need to attack. You got to defend where you got to defend. So it's, it's very much like playing chess. And so I realized that this exercise was a massive change management exercise. It's about changing the mindset of people, which is very, very difficult to do especially in large corporations, it's very difficult to kind of drive this kind of a massive change, especially when you have a business that is so entrenched in the traditional ways of doing, uh, doing uh, business. Uh, so what I did was a couple of things. One, you always look for allies. You always look for people who are like-minded, who are going to be supportive, who understand the concept, who have prior experiences similar to yours. And at least you don't have to explain to them how this thing works. So you find a few people, if you're lucky, that will become your advocates. You use leadership, especially senior leadership, to help you on a few things that are really, really important. And sometimes it's painful, but you need to find a few key leaders that really are respected in the company that will be on your side. Then, as you're going through the process, you're always looking for wins. So rather than trying to move the boulder up the hill and get crushed by it every single time, it's better to find places where you can actually show some proof points. So for me, um, it was about trying to figure out what is going to get people's attention. So the one thing was, okay, the web business, as we know, is very, very profitable, much more profitable than the overall business. And therefore, I picked a few spots with sponsorship and with like-minded people and really tried to show to them how we can actually make a big difference, even with small revenues, to their bottom line. And once we picked a few markets and we demonstrated this over the, I don't know, period of maybe two years, it was very clear. Some In some markets, when we started, the entire profit for that country came from my small web operation, which is crazy. Our volume was less than 5%, but it was generating almost 40% of the profit, which was insane. And once we did that, we then started enlisting other people and using senior leadership to kind of spread the word, get get the successes uh, magnified so that people kind of saw it, uh, and then slowly kind of started building. And in my case, it was going from four countries to now we are in 35 countries, but it was from going from four countries to 10 then from 10 to you know 15, and then to 35. And now I'm at a point where everybody wants e-commerce and I'm saying, well, hold on, I got to scale the existing 35 because there is a big opportunity for us to make these countries much bigger rather than trying to go into new markets, right? So now we are kind of playing the reverse uh, uh, case where we are saying we need to get scale and we need to make sure that we are really a number one or number two player in key markets from an e-commerce standpoint. So... Those are some of the things that really, really helped uh, in the initial years. Uh, and now, you know, now it's much more deeper conversations, lifecycle management of customers using CRM, uh, trying to really upsell customers on a much broader portfolio of services and solutions, uh, you know, building communities that basically are talking about our products, talking about the kinds of things that we offer, engaging them on things that that's really important to them, whether they are SMB customers, whether they're gamers or whether they're students, uh, you know, a lot of their passion and a lot of the things go beyond just what we sell them. It is also about how we use technology to help them in the broader setting. Uh, how do we enlist the help of other people like them 
in the case of small and medium businesses, I mean, there's a thousand challenges that these people go through as they are trying to build a company, as they go through scaling their business. And they are always keen to hear from other people who might have gone through similar struggles. So how do we broker these people to come together? Right. So the value proposition of a segment, how do we own that? How do we make it real? How do we continue to improve that? I think is the essence of what we are trying to do. And in the process, we build deeper relationship with the customers. We strengthen their brand preference for Lenovo. Uh, we try to be innovative and we try to also articulate the Lenovo position around technology, which, by the way, is smarter technology for all. So the mission is much broader than just selling some PCs or some phones. It's about making an impact to society and to the communities that we live in. And and, what, and we can do that much more successfully on a web interface, right? Because it's, uh, it's easy to do, it's easy to communicate, it's easy to kind of execute. Uh, and so that's what we're doing now, uh, which is completely different than what we did maybe even five years ago. Fascinating. I do want to encourage our listeners to follow the one rule that you started this this uh, second part of the conversation with was building allies. And so when you become an exec, and a lot of people miss this part early in their, let's call it exec part of their career, is it's all about actually building tighter relationships, not really forcing your agenda like full force, because sometimes you have to like give up on your idea so that you can revisit your idea and really get it done. But there's there's not many people that actually advocate for the, this first piece. Um, and so I just want to make sure that the, the listeners listen to this piece, which is which I had to learn as well, was it's when you become a VP or you enter that exec, like whatever the title is in your organization, focus more on understanding people and building those relationships and everything. And from there, everything else will work itself out. That's right. All right, let's talk a little bit about B2C versus B2B. So as you're building your e-commerce experience, right, um, it's, it's, it's from what you're telling me, it sounds more B2C, but more consumer focus, right? Was there a enterprise focus as well a little bit later or from the beginning of the journey? Yeah, actually, the enterprise focus was there right from the beginning because there was no conflict. Um, ah. In the B2B space, it was more about uh, procurement-related and supply chain-related integration. So what we were trying to do was to make it easier for large enterprises, you know, whether it is Coke or Pepsi or, um, I don't know, Oracle, Microsoft, Intel, like big names, and really, and, and they made large-scale purchases. So we have been working with them for the last 15 years since I got here in, in standing up an enterprise-class uh, web capability that allows us to do business with them, but more around efficiency. And so there is no conflict per se in terms of e-commerce. It is really about how do we make it efficient for them to procure our products? And it's more, much more about, you know, backend integration, EDI, uh, Ariba, all of those kind of yep. things that you do from a procurement standpoint to make it easier for uh, these large companies to procure the products for their people. And that's a, that's a big part of our business. Uh, besides the B2C part. Yep. Setting up these trading relationships is is a whole other day job. And uh, and, and a lot a lot of uh, folks uh, miss out on this piece because, you know, setting up those legal agreements and all this stuff, it, it takes a lot of time. And, That's right. Uh, and and you, you, need to st- you need to be prepared 
and proactively work on it versus like finding it in the middle of your journey and then starting on it. Yeah. So fantastic. Large enterprise customers, it's a lot more easy. And, but we also dealt with a lot of governments, right? We were dealing with the state of California. We were dealing with the state of, I don't know, Seattle or Washington. And and okay. those relationships are, you know, they yes. are public tender. You kind of have to play by the rules. There's a lot of strict regulatory things that we need to worry about. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in many cases, it's multi-vendor uh, sourced uh, contracts. So there are a lot of do's and don'ts. Uh, there are penalties if you miss certain things. So it's a, it's a very, very different regulatory uh, and compliance um, environment than, you know, the even the B2C environment. Yeah. Uh, we actually had somebody from Microsoft actually talk about how to build public sector relationships on the podcast. The, the, the whole episode went on for, I think, like 40, 50 minutes, and he kind of broke down all the different pieces that go through it. So I would encourage our listeners, they're interested in learning more about how do you build these public sector relationships. There's a whole podcast on it, um, and you can check it out on our, on our website. So let's shift towards where, what is the state of e-commerce today, and, and how are you thinking about it? I mean... E-commerce, I mean, COVID has played a significant role and, and any publication that you read, any of the thought leadership pieces that you read, people are saying that the agenda on digitalization and digital transformation has moved up maybe 10 years because of this one year of people trying to figure out how to connect with their customers better and how to use their existing business models uh, more effectively. The one thing that is very clear, especially when countries had lockdowns, was there was no other way other than buying on the web. So that is very clear. What we have seen is a tremendous amount of innovation that has come off of it, which is uh, manifesting itself in true omni-channel experiences. So companies have realized that they need to have their traditional channel and they need to have an e-commerce channel uh, simply because the synergies are too, uh, too great to ignore. And in a time like a pandemic, that is the only game in town. So people who didn't have robust e-commerce systems, they really struggled trying to kind of get the word out to the customer or getting the customer to buy. Uh, so that direct interface became quite important. And I think that a lot of companies are now focused on it. Now, what has also happened is people like Amazon have already started this whole notion of kind of saying, look, we are online, but we need offline to really support some of the things, especially on delivery, especially on pickup uh, from a store. Uh, so more and more, we are seeing retail innovation that is combining online with offline. Uh, we are doing the same. Uh, we are doing several pilots uh, which combine offline and online channels so that we can synergistically drive uh, uh, a customer experience that is far more enhanced than uh, individually just e-commerce or just retail. Uh, we are seeing that retail uh, is getting disrupted in a big way. Uh, many of the retail entities are if they are not redefining themselves, are finding it difficult to sustain themselves. Uh, and we, we believe that retail will become much more experience-oriented in the future. Uh, they, they may start moving away from holding large amounts of inventory uh, and then use a web fulfillment engine to basically fulfill orders for customers. Uh, but use the, use the store as a way of innovating around experience much more. So you're going to see a trend that's going to happen. Um, look, at the end of the day, e-commerce for me now suddenly is becoming so much, it's, it's ubiquitous with how customers want to engage. And this is going to get a lot more momentum, even more than what we have today 
as the millennials enter the workforce and as Gen Zs enter the workforce, in three years or four years, more than 70% of the people in the workforce will be in the 25 plus uh, age group. And these are all native digital people. So these are people who grew up with a iPhone or with a smartphone. And for them, being online and being digital is only is the only way they actually want to transact. Uh, they don't want to go to a store and stand in line. They want to order online. They want to try it. If they don't like it, they want to send it back and get something else. So as more of this generation shift happens, you're going to find that the e-commerce is going to become basically a a meets minimum kind of thing. Uh, if you don't have a very good e-commerce experience as a brand, you're going to find it very difficult to survive. Um, I think what has also happened is the entire ecosystem of partners and tier twos and resellers and everybody, they also recognize this. So now I think there is a lot more conversation on collaboration, trying to figure out how to work with each other to manage the customer experience a little bit better. Now, when you go into pure play e-commerce, what we are also seeing is the trends around subscription, as an example. Um, more and more people don't want to pay the full amount of money for what they're buying. They would much rather pay as they go. So we see this trend to be quite important. Uh, we see education as an entire industry uh, ripe for disruption. We already see that the pandemic kind of said, hey, people are by studying online. But what is more important is what are universities doing? What are students doing? What are parents doing? What are educators doing? More and more, the belief is that uh, students of the future will spend a lot more of their time online. And so content, the way you produce content and the way they consume content uh, and the format in which they consume content, all of those things become very, very important. Um, you know, nobody reads these days. People are listening. You know, podcast, as an example, has taken off. I mean, some I heard some staggering fact that it's up like 1,000% or something in terms of its uh, its growth. And the reason is people are people want to listen and they want to listen in small chunks, uh, you know, sound bites. Um, same thing with e-com. As you're thinking about content, uh, more and more short form format content, uh, more and more about talking about things that really matter to the customer. That is becoming important. And um, we started communities for students. We started providing online courses free of charge um, for the relationship that the student has with us as a brand. Because we believe that students of tomorrow, they need education in a very different way. Uh, so even as they are going through formal education and universities and other things, we do believe that the disruption that is going to happen in education in some ways is going to be driven significantly by online learning and technology. Uh, same thing with gamers. I mean, that's another big segment. I mean, gamers and students, we see about a 30% intersection uh, that are students and gamers. But gamers, same thing. Their entire experience has moved online. A lot of gamers spend an inordinate amount of time online. But having a conversation as a brand with them is really, really important. So no longer is it about just selling a product. It is about how do you engage them after they purchase? How do you make sure that we are focused on their interests as much as they are interested in our technology. And how do we facilitate, how do we become the platform that allows us to make them, make their endeavors more meaningful? Uh, and, and that's what the bottom line is. It is about making sure the value you are providing to end users, um, you know, in e-commerce or on the website, that's truly meaningful and impactful further.
right? Whether And, and same thing for SMBs. I mean, SMB uh, customers today, uh, there is a lot more entrepreneurship and, and, and Gen Zs are likely to be the biggest generation of entrepreneurs thanks to cheap technology, thanks to innovation that is happening because of App Store. The App Store, I heard the iOS App Store contributed $650 billion in revenue for the developers. So you can imagine that's not a revenue stream that existed before the App Store was invented. Um, so the world of SMBs is going through and the world of entrepreneurship is going through a massive resurgence. And, um, and we have the opportunity to help in whatever small way to bring their passions and our technology together, right? And by the way, you can substitute Lenovo for any other brand or any other type of products. You know, I think it's the same basic concept is how do you take your value proposition and make it more meaningful for the segments that you're serving? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the stuff that's happening in SMBs and uh, thank you to companies like Google Cloud that have made it super easy to just like stand stuff up. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I live in Silicon Valley and I literally cannot go for a walk across the street without hitting up a couple of entrepreneurs on the way. So it's it's all over the place. Um, okay. What I wanted to do shift gears into was some key lessons that you've learned that you can uh, share or advise. And remember, the folks that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be earlier stage execs around the world. And a lot of them are actually in like Singapore, Malaysia, India, Germany, like those places. And so your your advice on taking on these like massive, like large um uh, transformation projects? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I touched about some of those things, but I'll just summarize the things that I said. You know, when you are a small part of a business, of a big business, um, it's going to be it's going to be challenging for you to make progress, right? So you got to take it day by day, but very important to understand who your allies are. Uh, you got to build strong relationships with people. Uh, you got to be inclusive, um, you got to communicate really well. Um, and, you know, to the extent you can be transparent in your relationships and, uh, and building credibility and trust, I think is very, very important, especially as you're trying to launch a business or kind of starting early in your career, because people really will judge you based on a few things, your ability to deliver the way you actually conduct yourself in terms of building relationships and then ultimately, are you doing the right thing for the company? So once you are known for those things, regardless of what your personality is and who you are, if you have a track record of being consistent and doing the right things, um, you know, people are going to pay attention to that and they're going to give you extra credit for that mindset. And change management is always difficult. And so you're not going to change things overnight. So you got to find small wins. You got to celebrate the small wins. And you got to take the small wins and figure out which is the biggest podium where you can amplify that. Because other people, right, they, they are waiting. Some people are not early adopters. They, they are risk averse. So they wait for getting proof points. It's like buying technology. You know, some people jump in and buy the latest technology on day one. And some people say, I'm going to wait for six months because I don't know, this might be buggy. Uh, I want everything to be fixed before I buy it. So risk profile of individuals is very different in different industries and different places. No different for any company, by the way. That's just human nature. 
So your ability to demonstrate and consistently show success then will motivate other people to start adopting or at least be open to those ideas. Uh, and, uh, and I tell everybody that works for me that you cannot get frustrated by these things because that's the job description. If you sign up, if you signed up for change management, it is going to be frustrating because not everything that you're going to say is going to be accepted. Not everybody is going to agree with you. And sometimes, and many times, you may be logically correct and what you say is probably true, but other people may not want to accept it and they want to keep going the path they are going down on. And you cannot get frustrated for the reason. You just have to outthink and find new ways of trying to get across your point. So if, if solution A doesn't work, try solution B, C, D, and Z uh, because there is something else that will work. Uh, and, and sometimes the strategy is to step back and say, it's okay. I'm going to just let this pass for now and then I'm going to go focus on something else. Uh, in my own journey, some of the regions and some of the countries were very reluctant in adopting e-commerce. And so I basically said, that's fine. We're not going to, we're not going to force them. Let's go find other places where we can make the point. And, and that's exactly what we did. And, and some of the countries came much later. So being deliberate about how you manage change, I think, is really important. Uh, and then the last couple of points that I would say is that data uh, is, a, is a great asset, and being able to use data consistently is a, is a skill. You need to have strong people who understand data and who can actually provide insights and use that as a way of kind of driving change is very, very important. And the corollary to that is hiring smart people. You always need to hire a bunch of people that are stronger than you, especially in areas that you're weak. So surrounding yourself with people and a team that actually complements you is a sure short way of winning. Um, and, and in some cases, you have to pick people from different industries that are leading. So, you know, when somebody comes from Amazon and says something about e-commerce, people listen. Or somebody comes from Dell and they talk about e-commerce, people listen because they have tremendous years of experience. They have proven the business model. They come from a place where that was the gold standard so it's easy for people to understand from other people who have done it before them, and they are more likely to be uh, followers of that thinking even more than your own thinking because they just they just kind of ignore your your thinking as maybe a selfish motive, right? So you kind of have to use influence in interesting ways to change mindset. Yeah, no, well said. And I just want to double click on one thing that you said that if you're going to take something like this on. It's going to take time. So the traditional let's go do a role for 18 to 24 months is actually not going to work. You have to be ready for this for a while if you want to see tremendous transformation. Yeah, I mean, big transformations take time. They take investment and they, they really, really emotionally um, take a toll on you because you, you're kind of dealing with human beings and that's always challenging. Um, so... I mean, I don't believe in jumping around on career. As you probably see, I've been here 15 years and, and been in the same role for 15 years. And that's, I mean, the business is much, much bigger uh, than where I started. And it's a very different business today than it was even five years ago. But continuity uh, is important. Now, some may argue 15 years might be too long and maybe two years is too short. But you got to, if you're going to take on something, you got to make sure that you see it through 
at least you know that way you build credibility the next place you go because you're not seen as somebody who's jumping around but rather somebody who's committed to a strategy committed to their beliefs and has the tenacity to stick it out to make something happen that is meaningful well said all right let's move to the next part of the podcast which is we always ask our guests to share one resource that people can use after this podcast it could be a book it could be a blog it could be a, a website uh, notlenovo.com or or it could be a newsletter or a video so your your gift to the community in terms of a resource um so i i i've said this often in my writings and in my talks uh, i'm a big believer in behavioral economics uh, it's an emerging field that was made famous by dan ariely uh with his book predictably irrational um you know in many ways it opens your mind and opens your um thought process in understanding human behavior and in many cases there is parallels to your life with what actually happens with the irrationality of the human brain and so uh if you're interested i i highly recommend reading books on behavioral economics in fact um kaneman won the nobel prize for behavioral economics as a first time anybody has won a nobel prize for behavioral economics as a field so it's still a pretty emerging field but it has got some very interesting and thought provoking um uh thinking that basically tells you how the human brain is um irrational uh but very predictable in the way it kind of behaves so um so if you have time i would highly recommend that you read Thanks for sharing that. I have to connect you with one of my really good friends. He's extremely like deep in behavior economics and and not right now. He was on this thing for since my days at Avalara, which was like 10 years ago or even 7 years ago. And at that time he was he was like, "Hey Asher, like we got to we have to like invest time in this." And he was applying that to actually to talent strategy interestingly. So you guys may may hit, may hit it off. Okay. Um who are we always ask people to recommend three other people either in go to market or data science that we should invite on the show do you have some folks that you respect in the industry that we should invite yeah i will uh, i'll give you two names um one is ashish braganza ashish used to be my data science leader 4 or 5 years ago and he since went to Op- oppenheimer funds uh, i don't know exactly what he's doing these days but ashish is uh somebody who's got great insights and thinking around data science uh the second person that i would recommend is uh ashwin mittal who is the ceo of course 5 course 5 is a company that i work with extensively on uh data related topics you know reporting ai based model segmentation any number of things supply chain optimization any number of things and ashwin and his company they have spent uh and are in the process of building a ton of expertise around uh, data science uh, driven insights and using bi to kind of change competitiveness of companies so those are two people i think from a data science standpoint that i admire and are probably going to bring perspectives that might be useful for your listeners fantastic well as we end this i'm sure there's going to be folks who may want to reach out to you so what would be the best way for them to connect with you if they were interested I mean LinkedIn is probably the best format um I'm I'm always there I'm very active on LinkedIn 
they can find me under my name, Ajit Shivadasan, um, or they can send me an email, ajit at lenovo.com, A-J-I-T at lenovo.com. Uh, I'm usually good with emails also, but just make sure that they reference uh, the podcast because um, I get yes. uh, a lot of spam. So I, I generally ignore it if it doesn't have a frame of reference. Yes, 100%. I mean, I've covered this multiple times in this podcast. Is if you want to go connect with an exec, be specific. Don't write a, a vague email. It's not going to get read. And so, and I'm sure like the same execs would not want vague emails themselves. So thank you so much for spending time with us. It was an absolute pleasure. There's many, many, many of these lessons. And I've, I've since like uh, earlier this year, I've actually started taking notes in the podcast. And like, I have a full page of notes that I actually took from this one. So thanks so much for for spending time with us. And we look forward to actually having you back on the show. We were going to have somebody from McKinsey who's going to talk about omnichannel experiences as well. Uh, and maybe that person may be a good for, person for you to connect with as well. So there's like a few connections. If you're interested, we'll make, make for you. But once again, thank you for coming on to the show and best of luck in your journey. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, good luck with your uh, podcast in the future. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers.